Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for Chrono Skimming Classics, Modern Marvels, and Ages of Khonshu, I guess. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me ripping the mystical artifacts like I am collecting endless sigils right out of the hands of my superhero friends over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me trying to figure out how to get rid of this baby at X. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by it. And you can talk to me all about it at xnatexgrayx on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you find me considering what other fist of what I could be. Like, we've got the fist of Phoenix. Like, do we get a fist of Wasping? I don't know. If you could, like, manage to, like, really encapsulate. Okay, so we're here to talk about Age of Conchu. The biggest transformative realization while reading this Moon Knight arc that was the thing that got me the most excited was Jason Aaron's brilliant way of distracting me by going after heavy hitters with stealable items to make me forget how many other fucking Avengers there were. And, you know, we're talking about magic. We're talking about mysticism and gods and the old gods at that. You could probably go up to Wasp and steal her wings in some mystic manner. You know, the same way we wind up with a Blade Sorcerer Supreme. Like, there really is something to the iconography of each Avenger having a tangibility. Except I really like the idea that you become the fist of wasping and you just stop talking about your emotions and dress in Chanel. <laughs> like Marge Simpson with that one Chanel suit that she mangled a million Oh times. my god, she just keeps recutting the suit over and over and over. Well, we're here to talk about Avengers 31 through 38, The Age of Khonshu by trade, but it features four different stories. Avengers 31 with art by Geraldo Zaffini, Geraldo Borges, Simon Kurdansky, Jan Bazaldua, Robert Gill, Matea de Iuis, Rochelle Rosenberg, with letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. We have Avengers 32 with art by Ed McGuinness, Francesco Mana, and Jason Keith, with letters by Corey Pettit. We have Avengers 33 through 37, which make up the Age of Conchu arc itself, with art by Javier Garon and colors by Jason Keith, as well as letters by Corey Pettit. And finally, Avengers 38 sees artist extraordinaire who kicked off this whole thing and already appeared this arc, Ed McGinnis, returned one more time with longtime collaborator Mark Morales on inks and Jason Keith on colors for Avengers 38. Once again, lettered by VCs Corey Pettit. Guy just seems to never stop lettering all of Marvel. These like four or five letterers that do all of our books. It's unbelievable the sort of vocabulary for language they must have at this point. Really and we talked uh, when we were covering Shang-Chi about Travis Lanham, who does some really incredible work. And one of the things I noticed is that his work for Shang-Chi really is noticeably different. I respect so much not only that all these people are great, that there's few of them, that they do really quality, solid work, but that their styles are broad enough that they really do change significantly book to book because letters are one of those things that even more than art broadly in a lot of ways, the letters should really 
really work around the tone of the book, the functions that are necessary in the book. And Marvel just really has a great team that is able to bend their personal styles and their talent to what a book requires. And I think you see that all over, but definitely in this run. Yeah, agreed. Letters are definitely the unsung heroes of comics for sure, because when they have to like just step in and create this book specific feel, they do it all the time. Yeah, I really agree. Like, I can't imagine having to do Khonshu in the inverted colors with the creepy lettering and then always be worried about every letter being completely visually accessible with the right spacing going around the edges and then having that sort of moonlight blue for moon. It's unbelievable what these creators who do line work by doing letters, who do colors by doing letters, these, you know, really geniuses of craft have to do to make our books accessible to us. They do the job of the actors performing the lines and the sound engineer making sure they're audible. And it really is an incredible feat. And I just love getting the opportunity to praise lettering, especially when it's as good as it is on this book. All right. But, you know, you guys said something and I need to interact with it. Fucking Tony Stark, huh? <laughs> uh, so I don't care about Howard Stark. I I just don't. Now, I care a little bit more about MCU Howard Stark because the same actor that played MCU Howard Stark played my uh, perfect fictional boyfriend, Jesse Custer. And so I I have a soft spot for TV and movie Howard Stark. But do you guys care at all? When I was reading this, I was like, what? What? They've changed to Tony Stark's backstory an awful lot. Do I even care? Not really. You gotta throw out there, you're talking about Dominic Cooper as Howard Stark, but John Slattery, no slouch either. Yeah, John Slattery as the Walt Disneyest Howard Stark ever. Howard Stark's real fuckable no matter what you're putting him in is in the MCU is really the point. And I think that's a solid choice, you know, especially as really kind of a cameo queen throughout the Marvel Universe. Really go for the gold with whoever's going to play him and use him sparingly. Great character. Don't care about Howard Stark in the comics. I don't really care about Tony Stark in the comics. I was sort of hoping that Aaron would maybe care a little less about Tony Stark in the comics. I really respect that he is as deferential to Tony as a leader. This maybe is one of those points that I think might speak to the idea that I've repeated consistently in that this Aaron run really will do its best work as a title in the Marvel Comics universe if it can function to bring people in from the MCU and give them stuff that they recognize. And in that way, Aaron might be playing the long game of like a lot of people are coming from stories where Tony really is the unequivocal leader and where we look to him as this kind of fun, sexy dad with great repartee who can lead a fight. So that's what we get here. I'm never charmed by it in the comic books this will be as generous about the whole thing as I would ever be the one thing I will say I do really love even though I still hate Tony Stark in loving this is I love his conflict with Carol I hated Civil War 2 but everything after that I think they both lay off each other really well and writers who use that well salvaged a terrible crossover and turned it into something that w- can work really well for the two characters that it did the worst things 
things for. And Aaron is one of those writers and he's doing a really good job here. I really enjoy the banter between them. Love the idea of them as mom and dad to the baby in like, I love the idea that that's funny and stupid. I hate the idea, period. There's a moment when they're interacting where he says, I'm the smartest person either of you know. And I hate when Tony Stark says stuff like that and the book does not bitch slap him for saying it. <laughs> he should be 10th smartest being the most generous. He should really be Elon Musk. And what we should be saying is the only smart thing you ever did was find smarter people to employ and steal from. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That is a savvy move. And in terms of saving the world and super heroics, it's probably an even savvier move. We can build a hero out of somebody who's not super smart, but knows how to hire smart people. But I hate Tony, the quote unquote futurist, who is this uber genius that somehow is smarter than Reed Richards, or even to take an example of somebody I think is smarter and don't like, Hank McCoy. I just don't buy it. I don't like that for Tony. And anytime he says it, I think he should be punished. I don't even think Tony Stark's the, the smartest Avengers. Like, I hate to give Hank him credit, but I like, I think Hank's <laughs> smarter than Tony Stark. Tony Stark in the comics and Tony Stark in the movies don't need to be the same thing. And Tony Stark in the movies, while a sanctimonious, yeah, well, you know, sanctimonious boob, as it were, he here is a bit more of a, you know, he's the flawed Marvel character that we've always kind of seen him to be. And one of the things that I get tired of with the constant one-uppery of the Marvel Universe is I think it's cute when Amadeus Cho is like, I'm the eighth smartest person in the world. That's cute because he was a young man. Now that he's brawn, it also adds another layer to that story element. But one of the things that the I'm the this smartest, that smartest, this person lists don't take into consideration is like, I'm pretty sure Maker is smarter than all of you, but he'd chew through all of your legs. So like, steer clear of Maker, who's smarter than all of you. And like, Galactus is like, galactically smart. And I don't know, I find sometimes when we lock ourselves into this, you know, we have to keep Tony Stark on this vaunted pedestal, we lose out on some of what made this issue great for me, the brutal inability of Tony Stark to overcome the obstacles ahead of him, but needing to find ways to persevere is the sort of thing that I'm looking for from a Tony Stark. I really enjoyed that this issue just sort of saw him come into conflict over and over again with the 1 million BC Avengers, who I have started putting in my notes as A1 BC, and I really enjoyed doing it. I love this team so much. I think that the core element here is that Mephisto is like, hey, Tony, I'm here to be your friend, Tony. And Tony's like, um, I don't think so, snake person. I just kind of want to be like, haven't you guys like fought a number of times? Like, I feel like at some point Tony Stark had to have fought Mephisto because like, as this book makes it clear, everything is Mephisto all along. <laughs> also, if he's so smart, how the fuck do you not know when a red talking snake comes up to you? Yeah. What the broad strokes are. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be specifically like, you are that guy Mephisto and I know about your kid Blackheart and you're different from that guy, what's his name, Curios, who is also Satan. But at the very least, he could be like, this is devilry. <laughs> he was too busy trying to flex being the Ice Age Iron Man. <sighs> okay, yeah, that's actually my new favorite code name because I don't know how Ice Age Man is clever, but I find it really clever. I don't know what about it I like so much. It's the same kind of thing I like about Gorilla with a Power Stone. It's just one of those things that like when you say it all at once, it's really literal.
literal. And that works for me. Oh, talking snake, more talking animal. <laughs> How do you guys feel about the slow build of Iron Man's time in the past coming to such a head here? I'm not invested enough in Tony Stark. So I think if I had been more invested in his character, I think, you know, this issue would have been a lot more amazing. But I wanted Tony to spend more time with the 1 million BC Avengers than with, uh, you know, Mephisto. Like, okay, cool. We know it's the Mephisto of it all. But I want to see, like, Tony Stark trying to get with, like, Cavewoman Phoenix and, like, Odin's like, no, son. I wanted a lot more of that. And I got more, like, Tony Stark, like, dancing with his demon. Talk about taking a morsel and turning it into a Mephist. Am I right? <laughs> Just keep these coming. Yeah, I don't care about Tony Stark in the future, the past, or the present. I definitely see this as, like, okay, this is a thing that has to happen for plot reasons and for this whole thing with Mephisto to come to fruition, which at this point, we have lucked out so much with this coverage in terms of like wanting to have done it for a long time, but waiting, starting to pick it up right when Axe was really firmly, clearly going to happen on the timetable that we knew. So this coverage became beneficial, not just to us as readers, but hopefully to listeners who are getting into that stuff. So my point just being that now that we know that it's all of the Mephisto plots that are really essentially the big bad of all this that are going to get wrapped up in Avengers Assemble and, you know, have been being pushed in Avengers Forever, that this is how this is all coming to a head. To know that now, as I'm reading these parts of it that I maybe care about less, I'm far more forgiving of them than I probably would have been picking this book up monthly. And even picking it up in trade a year ago, not really being sure what the point of any of this was. But now I'm like, I can see the end on the horizon. So tying something I'm not necessarily interested in to something I know has a solid end point, it's a boon for me. It makes things as a reader a little bit easier. That said, this did sort of feel like they wanted to give Tony Stark that Bruce Wayne Batman travels through time and encounters various bat selves throughout history. I know we really just kind of get the one and it's more about the one million BC, but it very much felt like what can we do sending the flagship Avenger through time in some capacity? And I just, in and of itself, don't care. I would have wanted to see like Ghost Rider or even Blade get that treatment because I think it would have been more interesting. I know that doesn't really sell as many books as Tony Stark, the flagship Avenger in an ice Iron Man suit. But for me, being a little critical, that's where my heart is at. Some of these stories have either been too compressed or not enough compressed for me. I think if you wanted to make this an interesting story for me, I think it needed to be fleshed out. It's interactions with the BC Million Avengers. I, I think like this one issue could have been an arc and you could have done something a lot more interesting with it than do one issue where he's like, oh cool, I'm back from the past now. Ha ha ha. Because I do agree that the whole jump forward locks in when you're reading it all at once, but I don't think I got that much from it the first time I read it through without knowing so many more pieces that we were ultimately going to get. Like the value of issue 32, which sees the realization that ultimately Mephisto is involved with the vampires, the Red Room, the Squadron Supreme, and the Defenders of the Deep. That is such a huge amount of like finally having it all made clear that it it feels overwhelming. I don't even know if I felt overwhelmed by it. In some ways, I almost felt underwhelmed because it was kind of like, oh yeah, obviously at this point. I kind of felt the way that you felt, TK, because I'm kind of like, oh, okay, but I'm sure we all figured that out by now. (laughs) It probably might have been smart too, even if it was a red herring, given us somebody else who is like, I'm making big moves in the world right now too. 
like, you know, you mentioned Maker. What a great example of somebody who it's like, I totally would have bought, was doing plots and like weird science crimes in all of this. And for that to be like, oh, it was actually Maker who got Coulson to put together the new Squadron Supreme. And then you tell me in like issue 59 that in fact, the only reason Maker was doing it was because of Mephisto. That might've given us a few layers of abstraction that were pretty telegraphed into everything is Mephisto. Anything that's going wrong is Mephisto. That's our villain. That's our guy. Let's just look at him. Now I actually wish we had seen a red herring that was floating around talking to Namor in the ocean. (laughs) I'd be fine with it. And you're suggesting another talking animal. Right. (laughs) Man, I love that talking animals just like embrace your inner animal creature is one of the huge theses of this title. You know, that first opening page, Namor looks 60s delicious. And because he looks so 60s delicious, cheesecake, beefcake, and all the ways that I love cake. And it's Ed McGinnis. Ed McGinnis, who's like, oh, what am I drawing? Xavier, giant muscles. You know, I I just sort of assumed this was going to be the issue. It's just, you know, Ed McGinnis is here. This guy's an underwear model. Which is, I know that's not what Ed McGinnis sounds like. I've met him. He's a very nice man. But his art is so bigger than life. It's hard not to impersonate his art bigger than life. And, you know, his hyper-realistic turtles tell you everything you need to know, followed by the hyper-realistic demon dolphins, which I am in love with. And not like that. You know, dolphins are mean. These are just cool dolphins. Uh, But look at Namor's face there. The transformation that we're able to see in the art is so stunning. And that's one of the things that really allows issue 32 to do so much of the work that it does. Agreed. That page with the demon dolphins, they are so cute and so mischievous. Like, holy hell. Like, it, this, the art definitely elevated the story. And I think Namor kind of represents that red herring almost. Like, Namor as a little bad villain for this story is a good one. It just, that we know so clearly that it is tied into Mephisto stuff. This feels really early to know all that which in some ways is silly because it's it's been you know years worth of issues at this point but it does feel knowing how much more we have to go it does feel like that some of the reveals of who is behind everything came a little earlier than maybe might have made sense you know to get through Age of Khonshu Enter the Phoenix and World War She-Hulks for instance after that because those are all really big stupid fun stories that you know have little pieces that are consequential to the larger narrative but you could be lulled into forgetting and just thinking they are big Marvel continuity by way of Avenger stories and then you get the the big bad reveal and so somebody like Namor becomes a really solid option as like oh this guy is such a thorn in our side um, he does a good version of that here but it's a little muted and it is even more so by the fact that like now I'm just kind of always looking looking for the red animal that is actually in control of the situation. Well, I mean, obviously the baby is in control of the situation and Thor being like, put this little baby in my care. I love this little baby. We are all its parents. Little baby is a really interesting thing considering love and thunder. I don't know. There's some interesting, you know, really fascinating parallels about Thor wanting to show parenthood. The thing I really enjoy is Tony being like, is it mine? 
That's so Tony. I enjoy Avenger parenting as long as the baby doesn't start to be like, you know, help me. I need my galactic diapers. <laughs> well, I mean, he does basically grow up that fast. <laughs> and we appreciate it. Yeah, of course. He makes a joke about it being, is it his? It's a part like core to Tony Stark, but core to like, oh, I don't like Tony Stark. Pure ego. He's like pure, like, like everything's about me. And he has to find a way to make that situation about him. Also, like it kind of works in MCU where even you just get two or three brief glimpses of Tony Stark flirting with another woman, especially early on. Tony Stark flirting with another woman or, you know, sending that journalist out of bed. You get the impression that Tony Stark fucks, but you are not really allowed to have that impression in the comics. And you very rarely see Tony Stark, the womanizer, Tony Stark, even the guy who gets laid a lot. Like, it's all character assumption where you can make jokes about it, but you're very rarely showing him on panel in bed, getting out of bed and becoming Iron Man. So a joke like this really, for me, falls a little bit flat and points to that idea of part of this is for MCU people coming with the preconceived notion, because to them, this is already built in. So they don't necessarily need or even want the moment where Tony is fucking. Um, But for me, we just don't see enough of who the casual character of Tony Stark is for me to buy a lot of his jokes and like one-off comments because he kind of just is Iron Man all the time. Also, I don't believe he's this size. I don't believe he's this size compared to Thor. I would like that revised. I think he has a smaller neck than that. I think his shoulders are not as yoked as that and I refuse to accept anything else. Something you said about Tony Stark did make me think like we really haven't seen a lot of him in post sexual suggestive situations even if like he's just in bed with somebody. Although unfortunately for some reason we have seen at one point in time Hank him and Wasp using size play with each other. Unfortunately? <laughs> you're like I think Tony's neck should be less big and I'm like I said this is the guy that makes Xavier buff I'm just excited that it's not just a jacked baby you know what I mean uh, look at that baby's fist that, baby's yeah, that fist. baby has He's a jacked baby okay that's a jacked ass baby yeah I, I cannot fight you on that that baby's gonna <laughs> fucking take you down this is what we're talking about you know like it's okay to have you know because we're saying the art is beautiful the art is incredible we might disagree with some of the proportionality but the art is you know really excellent and when we're pointing to things like you know the contrasting use of cheesecake and beefcake we also always want to bring it back to I love that Mephisto is still here in this fabulous patty to dead drop on all of us and just looks like the queen we all deserve to be does he have a framed photo of Rob Zombie <laughs> wall i think what are these pictures well and so i recently had to explain to jonah he was uh talking and i was like you know honey i just need to point out every time you say you watch dragula can i play for you what i hear when you say dragula and so i played for him rob zombie's dragula and he agreed for me those are very different things (laughs) yeah i mean honestly in a lot of ways the boule brothers are a lot creepier and a lot closer to satan's heart to me yes that is exactly the photo that he has on the wall and that Mephisto is the shitty guy who's like that's my little Rob Zombie that's my boy and asks for like a picture with him when they both eat the moons over Miami at Denny's and that's just the moment that he wants to treasure (laughs) it sounds like a personal moment for you (laughs) it's a very personal (laughs) moment the time that me and Mephisto met at a Denny's (laughs) 
just captured a moment. Um, <laughs> Ghost Rider broke him out of that fucking prison, and then they never finished the story, and I refuse to not have that acknowledged. He actually didn't break him out of the prison, he broke the prison out of the wall, and just dragged the whole box with the motorcycle. But I really wish that was coming. I, I just, I had to say. Well, you know, I, I get what you're saying, because one of the things that we've said so much about this book is how well it creates an interweb for other titles to interact with. And one of the things that that potentially means is oftentimes when the machinations of the Avengers book started coming through your world, you know, something we've talked about a bit, whether it's in the exquisite coverage we've had of things like Defenders Beyond, which Nathan recently led, or it's in the pages of talking about Avengers here. We've talked a bit about the fact that there is definitely a possibility to a self-retconning engine allowing the Marvel Universe to keeping on existing. We could be in a different cosmos and just not know it yet. We could be in a situation where there weren't 1 million BC Avengers before Mephisto started doing all of this stuff and something gave us the way to fix it. And I'm really curious about how often something like a a storyline that never really got resolved, like a story started in an issue of Ghostwriter that, you know, when Mephisto comes back to Avengers, we have to just assume that those are some of the protocols that they mentioned that Doctor Strange had in place to keep the jail in place. You know what I mean? Like they want us to do the hand waving work so that this engine can restart things for this character line but that does sometimes feel very sloppy you know everybody gets upset with the ideas of the 1 million bc avengers or moira mctaggart's retcon but i think you can kind of look at it this way and the everything since secret wars has been in the eighth cause so everything before secret wars was in the seventh cause right so like all of that stuff that we know and love did happen the way we remember it in the seventh cosmos but the eighth cosmos things happened like mephisto going back in time so the 1 million bc avengers sort of formed in reaction to that in the eighth cosmos but that thing never happened it allows us a dexterity that makes the stories that seem implausible more possible and i think they would really be wise to make use of stuff like that i think sometimes it feels like people take big swing like a hickman takes a big swing and introduces the idea that this is the eighth cosmos that got picked up a little bit in ultimates and then just slowly it kind of fell away and it is technically still canon but you know that there are a lot of people that probably don't want to touch it I suspect that Aaron currently does not want to. I don't imagine this will come up when explaining what is going on with the million BC Avengers. It would be cool if it did. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a great idea, but I don't imagine it will. Similarly, the other thing I think it could explain that I think is probably going to get a much more convoluted reason is what's going on with the millions of years older mutants that have been discovered in Marauders. I like your explanation, and I think what this book is, what Aaron's Avengers is doing, is pulling on some other really old ideas and reminding us that they exist, they're important, and they can be used for other things. I suspect it will be a future big writer who comes in and says, you know, like, it'll be one of us and say, like, we actually really thought the Avengers BC were cool. I want to write a way that that actually makes sense in continuity. And the whole shift in Cosmos thing would be a really interesting way to talk about it. And that's still canon. So let's use it. You know, let's talk about how 
how that affects Moira's life cycles. These are all really cool ideas and I'm glad they exist. I like when writers take those big swings and put those things into the universe and I don't even mind when they kind of slowly and quietly get put back on the shelf. But I, I'm always happy to see somebody taking stock of their house of ideas resources and really putting those into play when it comes to coming up with more out there storylines. Because this is comics. We're always going to have to do something bigger and crazier than before. And sometimes that's really annoying and is really unsuccessful. And other times it's like, because somebody else did the work of doing a bunch of weird, crazy stuff, I can pick up on that stuff and, and build on it and do something even bigger and crazier. And it's not going to seem like I'm just stunting. It's going to seem like I'm building off of what was there. Speaking of building off what was there, I guess Namor kept Phoenix's digits. <laughs> and he's just like, hey, babe, my eyes look crazy. Want to get some chicken nuggets? What, why is he getting chicken nuggets? Is he trying to eat part of the cosmic fiery space chicken? I think he wants her to feel at home. And oh. I don't get how that would make her feel at home. Well, <laughs> they both agree they're not going to eat fish. That's... <laughs> no, but I mean, come on. If anybody is going to crazily, creepily talk to the firebird who had a ble- brief flirtation with it. Like... Got Summers being like, Gene, did you hear? Phoenix is here. And Gene's like, Scott, put your pants back on. Our mutual girlfriend, <laughs> Mommy Dom, is here. <laughs> like, I miss her. I loved her. She was the one I loved. Fire peg me, Mommy. Fire peg with me. <laughs> I stand by it. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the age of Khonshu, but that's yeah. okay, because you can get through it in about three sentences. The years were 1993 and 1994. I was just a young man full of ideas about coins, communicators, blasters, and zords. And Power Rangers, I think, much in the way Thundercats and He-Man and She-Ra, these things gave us tangible, iconographic valuables that, while number one, were designed to sell toys, and create collectibles. They also tied into something really unique that I think, you know, the recently released Sandman TV show remembered very cleverly about the comic, which is Death's Ankh is not perhaps her source of power quite the way it, you know, would be in Power Rangers, but it's such a unique part of her. There's a story late in Hellblazer. I think it's like Hellblazer 270 or 280 something by Pete Milligan, one of my favorite arcs, The Devil's Trench Coat, where John's trench coat like really has magic to it because it's so visually been his trench coat for so long even if it's not the exact trench coat it has value and it's kind of child simplistic in some ways oh i took your fist (laughs) oh i took your eye oh i'm gonna take your panther blood but it's kind of i i don't even have it's it becomes conceptual in how simplistic it is in a way that i find truly engaging i didn't know the sorcerer's supreme worked that way where if you just took over the (laughs) damn you're the sorcerer's supreme now. That, like, that was a big question mark that bloomed over my head as I was reading this. Well, what if it's not that taking the eye does that, but what if it's specifically at the height of the moon in its greatest source of power with these dual fists which create a body and an ability to draw charged by a god hell-bent on destroying a devil? What if we allow for the fact that the phoenix and its infinite knowledge never should have been corrupted in a human form but for the strength of Jean Grey's love in who she was. What if this moon, this moment gave Moon Knight the power to do this thing on this representational level? 
a la King Mob giving Grant Morrison a hole in their fucking cheek. What if? And also, man, Jason Aaron, if I am totally off base, you can just tell me to write fuck myself. But like, I really, I really read it that way. I really, it's this exact moment. And that's why it's never happened again. And it's never going to happen again. Are you suggesting that Mark Spector should lose himself in the moment? He owns it. A cosmic rap battle also should and could have been an option. And I just want to throw that out there. But also don't steal that idea. I'm going to use it later. Thank you. Bye. We were robbed of the rap down between Kanchu and the Phoenix Florida. Majolder being Moon Rock. <laughs> Best actual moment. Because when you conceptualize like where the fact that Mjolnir, you know, when, when Jane finds Mjolnir, it's on the moon. Like, mm, oh. that's right. But, but I, I do have to ask, Nathan, you are you are our resident Moon Knightist. You are the fist of the fist of Kanchu. Yeah. So you're like a tiny little fist coming out of a big fist so it's it's very body horror it's very Cronenberg tiny little fist full of fist. okay alright yeah <laughs> go ahead so can you help us Matroshka fist down the Moon Knight a bit how does this play into where Moon Knight ultimately ends up I mean he is the one who turns on Khonshu and ultimately saves the day but how does this Moon Knight fit with the character you've just spent like 18 issues covering I'm glad I read the Moon Knight series first before I read this arc this arc obviously sets up how he got to where he is, his actions. Mark comes out of this broken as fuck. Like, he is obviously not trusted by any of the superheroes after this. Tigra even has to come and, you know, keep tabs on him, on the Avengers for him. And, and he knows this. He knew that this was going to have to happen. It started a, a good change in him where he's taking therapy seriously. He's growing as a character. But to see this arc, it's, it's hard because Mark isn't so much being himself as he's acting through what Conchu has really told him like hey this is we've got to do this we've got to beat Mephisto and like he's definitely not his best and he's I like it because this is this gives me a good idea of how he got to be so broken on top of everything else but it doesn't really fit in with the beautiful Jen McKay series that's going on now. I also wonder about how it might fit into depictions that we're currently seeing of Iron Fist you know Nico I, I do really love your explanation I, I would love for Jason Aaron to comment and say if he was intending something like that or if he just thought it would be really cool if Moon Knight started stealing stuff. You know, honestly, completely valid. I'm demanding- Also really these, cool, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm demanding these like solid reasons for why this shit is happening from a guy who is the fist of an Egyptian god that nobody really technically worships anymore, fighting another god that nobody really worships anymore, fighting the leader of a nation that doesn't- So point being, if it is just that Aaron decided it was cool, that's completely fine. Um, um, I do love your explanation because it does touch on the mechanics of why some of this stuff maybe shouldn't work, but does. I'm, I'm a huge fiction podcast listener. Like that is what I'm doing with 90% of my day. Most of the nonfiction podcasts I listen to are X-Men and specifically comic book related with one big exception. The podcasts that deal with the works of Brandon Sanderson are a huge chunk of my nonfiction podcast time. And most of those deal with the mechanics of how all of the insane magic systems and world building that he does function and he really cannot do stuff just because it's cool he better have a really solid in-universe magical explanation for why something works and the fans will cross-reference and demand explanations for stuff that doesn't feel right my point just being that I sometimes forget where I'm at and what fandom I'm playing around with and what universe I'm in the Marvel Universe has never been 
been about needing a solid bedrock working foundation for why some of this stuff can happen. When that does come about, it's really cool. And again, I'm pointing to both Nico, what you have suggested, and Nathan, what you pointed out about this iteration of the Marvel Universe. These are really cool things that do exist and somebody can play with. But ultimately, if a story comes down to, it was just cool to have them steal the power. Sure, that's totally fine. For me, I did notice it in the context specifically of Iron Fist because I love Alyssa Wong's Iron Fist so much. And a big chunk of that book is about how the chi of the Dragon Shallow functions and how a new person can become Iron Fist. It is the first moment that we get from this that we're noticing that Moon Knight is stealing stuff. So it was just a thing that made me curious. I don't necessarily need a really solid explanation, but I I give Danny Rand a very hard time for his near existence as Iron Fist lately. And this was a good moment to, you know, this is a character that got bitch slapped a little bit just for existing in a way that I feel like Tony Stark deserves to. And it did set a tone of this story is going to be messy in a way that is completely intentional and you should enjoy the mess. You should not be looking for clean lines. On yeah, I, I love mean, that. I did enjoy the mess of seeing a cosmically powered Moon Knight like hitting Kanchu. Like, okay, that, that's a hot mess, but I loved it. Well, yeah, and I mean, that that is that is messy. The idea of, especially with the telegraphing and foreshadowing of Namor calling out to the Phoenix, that it shows up and possesses Moon Knight, and that this is going to lead us into the uh, Enter the Phoenix storyline. It is just a sloppy Joe of plot and storyline, and that is not to say that somebody tried to make hamburgers and wasn't able to do so. That is to say that this is the meal that Jason Aaron decided to serve us. Yeah. And I think you know, sometimes it can and should be really messy, especially when you're talking about Avengers plots that are kind of crisscrossing the entirety of the Marvel Universe and continuity. I think the one thing this had made me wish we had seen, because since Moon Knight is gathering all of these primal forces that were such big parts of the 1 million BC Avengers, so, like, we've, we've come to learn these are, like, primal Earth protection forces. Like, I would have loved to seen some sort of, like, Avatar, like, Fist of Conchu back then, like, have to try to fight the 1 million BC Avengers, just to kind of, like, tie in the idea. We get a panel of that. Yeah. We, get, we get a little yeah, bit I of want, that. Like, more, yeah, but I want, more. We wanted a battle. Yeah, I get it. And I think, you know, back to the idea of these mechanics and how the universe functions the hammer thing and the idea like that Moon Knight sits and explains like so you know this hammer was made when the universe started and there was just like one ball of stuff and another ball of stuff and that ball of stuff was technically a moon that's not like that sounds really stupid but it actually is really cool and then it gives this functional weight to what Mjolnir is and how it can function here in that same way you know I was talking to Nico about how I'm just a little cold on and I had really kind of glossed over those panels until my reread for notes on this and seeing the million BC fist of the moon god, let's let's call it. That's a really cool thing because what you're doing is you're reducing the thing back to further component parts and saying Khonshu because he's a moon god that was worshipped by the Egyptians. But the idea of a moon god goes back before Egyptian culture and goes back to before this name and the functionality 
ability of the person that is the avatar of the moon god kind of was the same back then. It was just that these concepts weren't so specified yet. They hadn't been dialed in in the same way. And I love that. I love that for Mjolnir. I love that for Khonshu. I love that for how moons and gods work. It's very cool stuff. And somebody can do something with that in the future. And I really appreciate Aaron being constructive and leaving a bunch of cool stuff on the table for somebody else to play. I really love the way Aaron immediately played with it himself. The idea that the battles all kind of come down to all of the other Avengers also show up and help out the trapped Avengers. They're trapped in sarcophagi. It's real interesting. While Black Panther fights Khonshu, which I'm into. And basically the way Black Panther wins is I keep talking and you know, it's the lesson that this book teaches me over and over. You know, we keep talking about these powers like they're items, but Black Panther talks about them like they're the spirit of the ability that makes the person so great. And he asks the power to come home to where it belongs. And he doesn't treat it as an object you take. He treats it as a force you respect. And I think that's what I'm talking about when I say there's a hyper simplification you could read this with, but that is kind of a Power Rangers level. But there is a dexterity you can read it with, which is Death's Ankh or Dream's Ruby, Helm, Destiny's Book. And that's a little bit more the contextual Neil Gaiman level. There's certainly nothing wrong with either interpretation, but I'm sure when you are the flagship title of the Marvel Universe, it is much more important to be the latter. And I'm so grateful that this book is and that it came from a man like T'Challa, who for all of his flaws, represents an ultimately moral superhero. Wakanda and T'Challa are a subset of the Marvel Universe that allows us to play around with deification in the Marvel Universe in a way that we can always pull recognizable deities from the world of our our readers, but Wakanda and Wakandan religion and the different ways that Wakanda approaches things like supernatural power allow you to give kind of a backdoor opportunity for these characters to have a broader understanding of religion and of godhood that comes from this fictional religion that can be kind of expansive when desired. So my my point just being that T'Challa comes to this specific moon god with kind of a much older, broader understanding of godhood that does not make him, oh, I'm from a different culture, so you're not my god. And it also doesn't make him like, I'm from every culture, everybody is my god. I understand religion on a broader scale, and I can approach you understanding what you are trying to bring to the table that is beyond the specific culture that worship you. And I think it's something that in recent years, especially, I think they've really relied on Wakanda to do because it feels a little bit, I think at best, inauthentic from others and at worst, like it's just white saviordom. So my, I don't have anything to add. I, you, you said my, my feels. Thank you. So <laughs> I want to ask you guys how you ultimately feel about the conclusion and the way it's looked at in the following issue. The battle is a bit, for lack of a better term, Jason Aaron pattern standard, which isn't a bad thing when a writer has been around and had the opportunity to develop that much of a sense of self and a sense of style that their work speaks volumes because you understand 
the beats you're going to hit. It's its own genre. It's not necessarily a trope. I think I'm fascinated that, you know, the Phoenix comes to bond with Moon Knight and then Moon Knight just kind of after that is like, you guys are lucky that I let you off. No, no, Moon Knight, you got lucky. <laughs> How do you guys feel about this whole Fist of the Phoenix play? Out? Hold on, though. I do want to answer that question, but we got to go back to something first. Oh, bring me. Bring me right back. Take me there. It, it's for, This is for you specifically. You know what I'm talking about. Nick Fury on the moon. Oh, my God. The unseen. The you know unseen. what? He's so unseen. I forgot to see him. <laughs> there is something about the way that Jason Aaron's excellent and epic, but should have been a Max story and could never have been a Marvel Universe crossover. Original Sin. It is such a great story, but as a crossover, I don't know how the Marvel Universe could have ever hoped to carry that banner. It was too revolutionary. It put certain characters in real time, which locked them out of step with the metaverse, which I'm fine with, but there is a certain sense of grandness that that takes. A certain amount of surrender to the rules of the internal multiverse that I just don't think that when Original Sin came out, the Marvel Universe was ready to give us. So seeing that that writer could ultimately go on to pen the Avengers, you know, Jason Aaron, it's just so exciting. But man, that the unseen Nicholas Joseph Fury, I really, I something about a guy named Nicholas Joseph I can really connect with, I guess. <laughs> and so I really, man, I loved that appearance. Thank you for bringing it up. So it was a big old mess, but of course, the novelty of Moon Knight getting Phoenixed was very cool. Of course, seeing all these big cosmic and godlike forces come into play was cool. The baby getting in the mix was dumb and cool. <laughs> Again, I love Carol and Tony as reluctant, like semi-divorcee. We had one horrible one-night stand and now we are stuck with each other parents. That is a funny beat. This does not end making me feel like this was a necessary story for this Avengers run, but this is one of very few cases where that's actually almost a good thing because this run is doing and playing with so much and very clearly has big gear turning plot beats happening all the time that when it gives us a three or four or five issue arc that is not going to have a ton of relevance in other books this is not going to be stuff that carries over into Judgment Day this is not going to radically change any single character it just kind of happened and got a little bit reversed but was a big fun thing to play around with this book can take those risks and can take those swings and even if you pull very little out of it I, it is okay for this run the confrontation issue seemed a little like you know like the finale of the battle itself seemed a little like we said a little very formulaic by jason aaron I, not that it's a bad thing it's it's a, it's a wild formula and it works and you know after this it adds like phoenix into the mix with the big confrontation finale pieces but like i think the thing that struck me the most as odd was you know when thor and blade are out there looking at the phoenix manifesting itself that they weren't just like beseeched with x-men characters trying to come and being like let's stop this logan in there like we've got to stop the phoenix like like I, just the their inclusion in the very last panel of it i love i love seeing that but it felt the phoenix coming out of a pyramid you know manifesting out of a pyramid would have probably summoned the x-men but that moment that x-men moment it's unbelievable to me how in a page and a half this book puts more affection between wolverine and gene gray than an entire 
entire line of X books does. Yeah. Jason Aaron does have a really good read on that relationship because there is some love there. Whereas in Percy has been kind of writing Wolverine is like, haha, you service me, Gene. Hey, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a thing I genuinely don't like. So I can't believe you two are making me do this. But Percy, I mean, like, I don't love the writing, but those two simp over each other in a way that's really weird and has been relatively consistent. It's weirder because Cyclops isn't in the mix, but Aaron is now guilty of that too. I actually was surprised that it was not the three of them, all of whom have been Phoenix hosts. Um, I, this, for me, this, this was a good moment. Like, play it smart, Aaron. Don't get too in the weeds with the X-Men when that's not a big part of this story right now. Two iconic characters. I can understand why it is Wolverine and Jean and not Cyclops and Jean. Technically, Cyclops had a bigger relationship with the Phoenix, both romantically and as part of himself. But this is Um, still in the heart of Wolverine and the Phoenix being one entity at the end of time. Right. From the Thor run. Right. So Jason Aaron has no patience for your AVX references. <laughs> as well, I have no patience for them either. I, he is he is exactly on track. I say that um, having knowledge of the fact that we just discussed eighty four Phoenix AVX references, he made this arc. But. There you go. Uh, you had to remember last time we saw the Phoenix Force, Cyclops was the host when the Phoenix died in Secret Wars. Oh yeah, it's. Lo- I was hoping Percy would get a little bit cheeky and fun with that particular. As soon as I saw the house on the moon, I was like, oh, can we fuck around a little bit? No, <laughs> we can't. That's fine. We kept it short and sweet that was good that said ben percy goes hard weirdly hard for gene and logan let us not forget all of uh, x lies of wolverine so anyway i'm just saying like we're we're picking up on some pre-established beats here I say one thing about the art making the summer's house i never realized that the summer's house was really a big giant flower so like the summer's house is a big giant vagina. like i love it okay love it. it's um it's an artichoke <laughs> and speaking of big giant we gotta talk about the big giant unbelievable revelation from the end of 38 which I mean I don't think it really changes everything exactly but number one they intimate this thing that's going to come up in a big way later on I know TK you're not read as far ahead but you know the introduction and further development of the multiverse of Mephistos is so much more clear here now knowing things that come later and I found that really interesting I'm also super obsessed with this you know the maggot that becomes Mephisto had some hand in why Apocalypse was bad for so long, in why Hulk was bad for so long, why Doom loses control, and by the way, we see Wolverine Phoenix again, which I'm thrilled about, but I'm also interested in knowing, is that Storm riding a dolphin with Yarnborn? It's Future Storm's daughter, sure, riding a dolphin with Yarnborn, of course. And And Jean Grey's daughter has a mace (laughs) oh my god oh my god doom the living planet just got a solo issue in avengers forever there you go huh that's nuts okay um i loved this everything but the ending howard stark makes me sleepy but everything else was really where my heart is at oh this page has so much power now you know, I love this little baby Thanos who's like, I, I'm here to I'm here to kill you guys in the name of being Thanos. Um, I know I haven't, you know, grown up yet, but I, I still am a genocidal maniac and I'm going to build a helicopter one day. Just you wait. 
I, I do love it. It's very cute. Why is Thor fighting with a phoenix in centuries ago? I love when anybody draws a recognizable apocalypse where it's not actually an A on his belt, but just a weird triangle shape. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I think it's weird when it's an actual A. I think that makes him seem like an asshole. It does. You know, it's one of those things. I don't think apocalypse is spelt the exact same way in ancient long lost languages from centuries Thank ago. You. Yeah. And so sometimes you've just got to recognize that when you put a letter on someone's, you know, costume, you are immediately locking them into having to change their name to fit that country of origin. So keep a lookout, creators. I know they've gotten much better about it in uh, recent years, what with the less giant letters on things. But, you know, guys, I, I think I'm going to give this arc. My notes have me giving it like a B minus, but I think I'm going to give the textual arc a B minus, but the discussion an A. I really like what we got from this discussion and it makes me like the arc more but it's one of those things where I think more than reading the arc I'll enjoy reading and discussing what the art evokes in others more than I necessarily get from reading it myself but I would love to know what you guys think about this arc I gotta give it a solid B minus almost solid B it had a lot of the fun elements a lot of the exciting elements like I, I love that it spawned the new Moon Knight series but I don't think if you are reading this Avengers that this book spun out of it if you come in thinking that it's going to have that same sort of weight it's not it's totally different psychological weight you know whereas moon knight's heavier and avengers is more fun this was a good fun arc i think it had some aaron goofiness which i've grown to love and love the camp value of it so like yeah it's a a solid b yeah it's a b minus for me although i really did enjoy our discussion of it and i think this is something else that i said before but this avengers run is about readers and fans and fandom. This is a book that is best enjoyed among friends, among fellow readers, among fans. If you can read this and participate in fandom through it, through having discussions with other people, through engaging online or at your local comic shop or with a community that you have that also reads books, you will benefit from all of these stories more. This, the next arc and the arc after that, so Age of Khonshu, Enter the Phoenix, World War She-Hulk, all to me are some of the dumbest arcs in this Avengers run and I say that with so much love. Not worthless, not not worth reading. They're just big and stupid and they don't necessarily give you a lot of the big character developing cerebral moments that Jason Aaron is capable of, that this book is capable of, but that is really okay because we they are about to publish issue 60 of this. It is a long run. There is a lot going on. You get those moments. You get them in individual issues. You get them in beautiful retellings of Avengers stories through the 1 million BC Avengers. There is so much here. So to have a bunch of big stupid fighty arcs with great art, some funny jokes, things to laugh at and talk about with your peers and then yeah, to speculate wildly about universe changing mechanics and how they might show up in the next issue and they might not show up for two generations worth of writers but the groundwork has been laid. That's all really fun and good and what makes this a really special run of Avengers and of comics in general that I really hope if you are listening you can participate in you know whether through talking to us or talking to people that you love in your community this is the book to do it against (music) 
Hey everybody, Nico here again. And I'm Necro the Tattooist. Just kidding, it's TK. Oh, thank goodness. I was like, I've booked the wrong co-host for this segment, and a whole lot of stuff that I don't want to deal with is about to come to the surface. That's because we're here to discuss Ghost Rider Vengeance Forever by Benjamin Percy, Juan Jose Ritt, Brian Valenza, and VCs Travis Lanham. This goes between issues five and six of Ghost Rider, the current run which we have been covering, the Benjamin Percy run. There's actually a pretty cool theme to today's episode. Our main segment, which you guys just heard, was Avengers 31 through 38, which is kind of anchored by some Mephisto stories and a bit of Moon Knight. And of course, we have an amazing segment by our very own Midnight Mission coming up later this episode, where we're going to take a look at the most recent issue of Moon Knight, another incredible discussion from a team that loves taking a look at this book on a critical and emotional level. And man, they often really like what they find, and it's such a pleasure to get to hear it. But since the other core element of this arc had been Mephisto, I was pretty excited to come Come back here with TK and talk a little bit more about Ghost Rider. So here we are, TK, the necro tattooist man. And my first question for you is, had you always known that it was Mephisto with Ghost Rider or were you just kind of like, it's any Satan? I had not always known. I feel like something that we have covered relating to Ghost Rider recently talks about Mephisto's relationship to Ghost Rider. And because we so constantly talk about Zoro. I think it's easy to forget the ways in which Mephisto can be in the mix here. But even just going back to the challenge of the Ghost Riders arc, hell is hell. It's always a Mephisto thing. And so the fact that the Avengers arc overall starts with some pretty early seeding of Mephisto in the mix, and uh, that sounded way more sexual than I thought. Don't seed Mephisto, people. Especially not in a mixed setting. That's something you keep for the privacy of your own dungeon. True. And just the the monkeypox implications alone. Be safe out there, kids. The tying of Ghost Rider to Mephisto is one of those things where, like, as soon as it's said so concretely on page, it makes all the sense in the world, and I know there have been other references to it, but it just wasn't really where my head was at, because especially Percy's admittedly still limited run on this series is so tied into itself and tightly referencing a little slice of Ghost Rider mythos and not really going wide with it. So I just never really put the pieces in the order that, you know, to good effect. I think Percy distracted me such that when he did a big reveal here, it was a little more special than maybe it could have been if all of these elements weren't in play in the correct ways. I really love that perspective. And I feel I also had a lot of confusion about what devilry we are bewitched by, by when. I mean, like legitimately as a kid, I sort of only knew that Mephisto versus miniseries. And other than that, I thought Mephisto might be Dormammu. I don't know. People were always like, oh, I got these actors confused. And I was like, I don't get actors confused. I have a subscription Entertainment Weekly, but it's all these damn evil Marvel devil people. I was convinced they were also all Belasco. It was really until I started to like take on my own fandom and read with intent for what I cared about. I don't think I really understood the Ghost Rider mythos. And, you know, I really feel like I come to Ghost Rider borrowed and by that I mean I've read a lot of 70s Ghost Rider because of Karen Page who temporarily left Daredevil to become a recurring character in well Ghost Rider and it was interesting because you know I'm kind of anal in that I will go back and I'll make sure that I've read all the appearances so that I'm sure of it and then I know again Daredevil Blackheart is a villain throughout the end of Senti run it's a little unusual but they make it work from there I know Mephisto 
Callisto pretty much from the Kieran Gillen journey into mystery, which is a really interesting point because I feel like there's a couple of different ways you can look at Mephisto. Uh, there's sort of like, you know, when I think about like, when I think about like rock music and if somebody's like, oh, that's like, that's like hard rock, right? Like, I feel like there's somebody out there, a very, you know, Q104 listener who is like, oh yeah, Barracuda by heart, that's hard rock. And then I feel like there's somebody out there who's like hell bent for leather, Judas Priest, hard rock. And I'm like, mm, that's somehow gayer hard rock than Barracuda, mm. right? And then there's somebody out there that's like co heat in Cambria and I'm like gayest hard rock yet first off how dare you secondly you're correct that's the gayest hard rock and that's why it's the one I like the most oh yeah no I mean I it's it's a karaoke number for me for sure they just put out a new album and it's fucking fantastic well until we start our Coheed cast you know and then there's a Guar fan who's ready to come into my face and spit blood screaming rock and I feel like that's sort of the spectrum on Mephisto it's, he runs sort of that heart Coheed Guar Judas Priest even maybe some later Halford kind of de- you know what definitely later Halford uh, uh, kind of gamut you know that's his that's his shtick and man is it clear that both ben percy and jason aaron really lean into like really gay guar for mephisto i think you're maybe giving them a little too much hardcore credit i would put them closer to the coheed and cambria camp i was gonna say that i think that spectrum exists overall for where the character has been but it is not a temporally linear progression i feel like a lot of those harder to depictions of Mephisto are late 70s through early 90s. That's where they're more likely to be. And certainly Avengers Mephisto is very dandy, very schemy. It might appall me how horny for chaos he is, but he's not <laughs> doing a lot of the being gross and hardcore. He's calling Phil Coulson and telling Phil Coulson to tell the Squadron Supreme to do the murders. So in that way he himself feels a little less hardcore than he might if he were just like showing up and ripping people apart you know him slithering through a skull while talking to apocalypse isn't you know yeah guar spitting blood on me in the audience okay you know what so i'm gonna take it all back and i think it's a little bit closer to if him from powerpuff girls did the dave navarro solo on michelle branches (laughs) are you happy now i think i found it okay yes through a bit of discussion we have dialed this in correctly because the name is so referential to Mephistopheles like be like having a character called Faustio or something you know like he is a public domain version of the devil and my assumption for a very long time was that he was simply the devil and they didn't want to you know because of the comics code a lot of this probably is what happened but because of the comics code they're not going to say like hey Satan has shown up so it's Mephisto and he looks exactly like Satan and he behaves exactly like Satan except there's a dude named Marduk Curios who's son is the son of Satan for some reason. None of it makes sense to me anymore, but for the longest time I just assumed that the guy who looked like the devil was the devil and that the son of Satan was his son and I didn't understand what Blackheart was. I thought it was just like a thing that got caught in Mephisto's drain one day and he gave it life but it turns out that all of these things have various different origins and at one time or another everybody is Satan and nobody is Satan. Definitely prefer the Sandman, Lords of Hell way of doing things, but this is what we 
we've got. And I just really want to point out that I think a lot of people draw the Son of Satan really fuckable. Oh, yeah. Very into his many looks throughout the years. Prefer him looking a little bit more bald edgelord daddy like he's been looking in Avengers. That's yeah. much more my jam. And in Strange Academy. Oh, for sure. Humberto Ramos draws him real good. Sadly, he did not make it into this issue of Ghost no, Rider. he's not Mephisto's son. He's <laughs> Marta Curios' son. Well... <laughs> But a bunch of other randos made it in, and yeah. it was great to see them. And I guess we should sort of address what Ghost Rider Vengeance Forever is. It's sort of a self-contained one-shot where a, the aforementioned... <laughs> me! Necro-the-tattooist <laughs> is sort of magically in a very... like, And I mean, this, this is like a compliment of the highest order. In a very frank, quietly kind of way, decorating Johnny Blaze's body with tattoos that are really bringing the stories that are already inside to the surface. So this acts as a narrated gallery. We used to see these a lot more when Marvel wanted to give you an establishing story and it would get called like Saga or you know, uh, you know Story So Far or they'd give it a cute name that fits the rebranding era and it would have a couple of little previews for upcoming titles and this played by all of those rules even if it was treated as more of an anniversary issue and called Vengeance Forever. I might even say that it recognized all of those rules and then broke most of them. It's definitely not giving us a lot of the story so far in terms of like any real concrete Ghost Rider canon that came before this. It's referencing characters that came before and their connections to the Ghost Rider mythos, but it's not doing that thing where it's saying like, and you know, before this crossover, Johnny Blaze was here and then this thing happened and then Danny Ketch showed up. It's really just kind of giving you glimpses of the broad ideas of the Ghost Rider mythos and the characters involved, and then sprinkling in a few little hints about what could be coming and what what places there are still to be mined for ideas. And I really like that about it. I think this would have felt a little bit cheaper if it was sort of recap clip show style, trying to get people in by hashing continuity that, you know, I think especially for Ghost Rider, probably no one's ever really going to care about again. So you really have to do, if you're going to do the broad strokes, you got to find a good way to do them and you've got to go broader, I think, than most writers would realize that you have to. I think Percy in that way really nailed it. I think the one thing he really failed me on, really failed me on, where the fuck was Kushal? It was really of note because we are fans, I think more of Ghost Rider as a mythos than we are of of this particular Ghost Rider and we sort of have our other side allegiances but we're both pretty beholden to Kushala and Robbie Reyes and you know probably a little bit more switched ratio on those two for each of us like I'm like 55% Robbie 45% Kushala I you know I respect it if it's for you a little bit more Kushala heavy but she really is a kind of defining part of my appreciation of this mythos and she's not something Marvel is shying away from as we know she's going to appear in the upcoming comic book adaptation of Midnight Suns, which has a different cast so that it doesn't conflict with the cast of the game, being a little bit more high profile and proprietary, which means by, it's so fucking funny. By virtue of being big enough to be in the game, you're too big to be in the comic book adaptation if the comic book adaptation is 
to be taken seriously. So Kushal is filling in for Robbie Reyes in the game and we got Robbie Reyes here. So I guess that's a little bit more in line with the like big picture interpretation, I guess. Yeah, I don't really know what the thinking was here. I'm just bummed because I really have been liking this book. I've been liking how Ben Percy relates to this mythos, this slice of Marvel Universe, this genre in particular. And I was really looking forward to in a story like this one that is about painting a really beautiful, comprehensive picture, like I said, with broad strokes and giving us this wide view of this part of the Marvel Universe. That was a particular angle and facet of it that I was excited to, even if it was just a couple pages, I was really excited to see him touch because she feels really important to me for what makes Ghost Rider more than some weird, like, I wish I was a Hell's Angel... I'm a mean, mean skull boy. Yeah, like, I I mean, like, I think about the guys who, like, in my life, like, people that I know that I associate with Ghost Rider and, like, that just thought, like, motorcycles and fire in the 90s were really edgy. And it's, it's bad, man. It's bad. And I'm liking some of the work that's being done to, because you can't really get rid of those things. No matter what, it's motorcycles and leather and fire. But you can, you can make something out of that. It doesn't need to be this, like, Americana nightmare and I don't mean horror nightmare I mean like I don't want this nightmare but the other characters and people like Kushala who can kind of touch other parts of the Marvel Universe and expand the idea of what a writer is they make it all more possible and all the more cool and they dilute the symbolic weight of things that seem a little silly like leather and fire and motorcycles so you know I'm just bummed I wanted I wanted her to get a chance with Percy I wanted Percy to get a chance with her could still come at any point maybe he's got an issue in the queue that's going to be pure Kushala and it just couldn't fit into here but I would have loved to have seen it I don't understand what the purple walrus ghost rider was that might just vengeance. be vengeance okay first of all as happy as I was to see Robbie in vengeance I too was disappointed by the lack of inclusion of a ghost rider I would have liked to have seen that one that helped those kids solve crimes on PBS I always wonder why they don't use him I feel like that one is you know he's a detective and he seems to have intense tangibility and I don't know and the power of language he could definitely have a crossover moment with Cypher I think it's out there but but so seriously uh, Vengeance is like Michael Badillo or something he's this like big tough New York cop and he is uh, basically what if Ifrit from Final Fantasy was a purple walrus yeah he's uh, why why is he a walrus he's a different demon yeah he's a different spirit of vengeance He's okay. where it becomes the spirits of vengeance. So he a walrus man without being no, like, with, during he's the day. Like a big roidy cop. Okay, and then when the fire hits his head, he gets walrus tusks. Yeah, it's kind of very Fleetwood Mask. It's very Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> Fleetwood <Tusk>. Mask. <laughs> I know, right? That's my Fleetwood Mac cover band now. Fleetwood Mask. Hey, I gotta go. Oh man, we only sing in falsetto the whole. <sighs> so no, he uh, turns into this fucking monster. It's his bit. He. What are the edgier ones? Like when, when, when did this happen? Early nineties. Okay, I really feel like we could have probably let this guy go and given Kushala these pages. I'm not gonna. I'm not backing down from that one. I also feel as though I might not feel like Ben Percy was given a chance to shine with these characters. Yeah, because like you know, I know the Robbie Reyes voice in my head. You know, he's been 
written with such consistency that I'm not like, oh, I'm such a big fan. I know it's like, no, anyone who's read a handful of Robbie Reyes appearances knows the Robbie Reyes voice. It's always dead on. They're very careful about who he is as a person and how he comes across. And I feel as though the Robbie Reyes I got here, while totally in line, didn't have that natural depth of like spirit that Ben Percy can put into anything. I feel like I kind of, like we've said, kind of had like a broad strokes thing. So I feel like if you're not, if you're like new to Ghost Rider, I feel like this really is exactly the thing for you. If you're not new to Ghost Rider, they've asked you to spend your money on three, like they've asked you to spend $3.99 on worse at some point in the career of Ghost Rider. So I don't know. I feel like I understand why everything has to be kind of general. The inclusion that I was least surprised by was $20.99. Yeah, I mean, yes, least surprised by, I truly don't know Vengeance at all. I really didn't know that was a thing. If that's really important to people, I apologize. Ghost Rider 2099 would be the other one that I would have put on the chopping block just in terms of what I think are the real gems of this mythos. But I get that 2099 is starting to pick up its second wave steam in terms of what Marvel is going to be publishing and is publishing. You know, Spider-Man 2099 Exodus is making a lot of buzz. There's new X-Men in the mix over there. It does not surprise me in any way that they wanted to get a Ghost Rider 2099 reference. I think we'll be seeing more of those throughout appropriate places in the current Marvel Universe. If we're talking about Ghost Rider as, you know, Zarathos versus Mephisto being in the mix, it makes sense to get a Zadkiel reference in there too. So this made a lot of sense to me and absolutely did not surprise me, but maybe was the one that I kind of wanted least and wanted for this the least. This is the one that though really feels like the preview for something that's coming. Well, I really wanted to interact with the fact that you felt like vengeance was a little bit outside of your knowledge. So he is somehow a little more overwrought than I ever imagined. So he first appears in Ghost Rider 21 in January of 92 and becomes Vengeance in Ghost Rider Blaze Spirits of Vengeance number 9 in April of 93. And he is a lieutenant assigned to lead a task force to bring down Ghost Rider, who was at the time Dan Catch, who was linked to the death of a police officer. So then Mephisto manipulated Johnny Blaze Ghost Rider into using Hellfire on Michael Badalino's father, which drove him crazy and led him to murdering like his whole family and then committed suicide while Michael was away. So then Michael blaming the Ghost Rider makes a deal with Mephisto to become vengeance. Uh, you lost me at an image that you sent me of Michael Badalino and he looks real fuckable and big. So uh, I think maybe you said Mephisto, but I only heard yeah. the fist part. You know that so many of these characters are so hyper deformed and they're so beyond human and there really is something to be said about the brilliance of the art team who is capable of making these characters attractive and sexual and I don't think Necro is like banging hot but there is a lot of work done to make you know Johnny Blaze human in ways that allow him to be sexualized and oh yeah he's rocking a real tight body in this issue which I was pleasantly and comically amused by 
This is haven't touched a carb in two years, 250 grams of protein a day. I just get it, Ghost Rider. And the only main complaint I have about the issue, because I'm very comfortable giving the story and the issue itself like a B plus in terms of, you know, value for my dollar. It just kind of feels like it doesn't end. It just kind of feels like, oh, the necro part goes away and Ghost Rider just leaves. And it feels a little unfulfilling. I'll give you that. I like Percy as a horror writer. This is a lane that I really vibe with him in and he consistently, when he shows up to do the beats, does them exactly how I want. I'm I'm just very impressed with everything overall. But there's also the comic aspect and I think that's where I have some trouble with Percy generally. And, you know, an example here is that I don't know what the stakes were of going to get full body tattoos in one session. We're going to set that one aside because Matt Will we be seeing these forever? I would love that. Johnny Blaze with half a skull tattoo, always? Fuck yes. But it felt like a big deal that he went to this tattoo artist and got this done and, you know, traveled through the history of the Ghost Riders, like, sent his consciousness out to the other ones, sort of touched on everybody except Jala. And given where we left off in issue five, which it would be very odd if this was between those two, but apparently that is the case throwing one or two stakes that are related to the story being told in the main Ghost Rider series probably would have been a smart comic book move. I love the idea of this session, this tattoo session, as like a power upgrade for him so he can go do powerful stuff. Mephisto is, as I said, in the mix, both here and in Avengers. If this was like a power up or some sort of unlocking of something or connection to Robbie in order to play a part in what is clearly going to be a big Mephisto storyline coming up in Avengers Assemble and who knows what else that would have been great. The fact that it doesn't really end in and of itself like I could forgive that if we understood what the literal and like the technical end of the tattoo session, what him walking out, what that meant broadly for Johnny Blaze being the Ghost Rider and what that would mean for the Marvel Universe as a whole. I think it's possible it doesn't really mean anything and it's not something that is going to be touched on a lot again and that's kind of to me the bummer about the whole thing it is a very cool clip show i think it's interesting that comiXology slots this specifically between five and six yeah especially with six having wolverine on the cover bold choice comiXology hold or ghost rider holding wolverine's body on one motorcycle at the end of issue five with blackheart the hairball yelling at them i just i feel very uh unclear about how they took such a divergent path between these two issues Maybe it will be explained. Maybe comicology just doesn't have it right. We'll find yeah. out. Well, we'll find out. And I cannot wait to see Wolverine and Ghost Rider try to outrun the edgiest Tangela. But until then, TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on this very podcast or on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. As always, you guys can find me here on this show, which you can check out at xsforpodcast.com and at xsforpodcast on Twitter. As for me, you guys can find me at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C. T-I-O-N, or you guys can check out my original comic work at KidRiotComic.com, as well as my contribution to the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. You guys can check me out at FlameCon in New York City, August 20th and 21st, where I'll have a bunch of cool X's for podcast swag, so definitely find me there. You guys can always find the show three times a week, every week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Monday's covering the MC2, me and this guy. Wednesdays and Fridays, you guys can find more Modern Marvel coverage every week. Until next time, guys, enjoy this last segment 
segment, Moon Knight, featuring our very own Midnight Mission. Don't forget, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X for Podcast, where we talk about modern marvels, Kronos giving classic, and excite for you alternate realities. I am Nathan, you can find me online on Twitter at Dazzler, a way that's like Twitter, like Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me talking about how cool Tigra is now that she's in two books. Yes! Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And this is Juancho, you can find me on Twitter at Lost in Krakoa. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. You can find me over on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. And I hope you survive, unlike Mark Spector's ego. Oof. Ooh, yeah. This, this issue is one I had been waiting for to see this confab between the personalities. And I don't think we were disappointed by it. This issue is written by Jen McKay. Alessandra Cupio is our artist. The wonderful and amazing Rochelle Rosenberg does colors. Getting into this, I assumed the fight between Nimeon and Grand Mall and Moon Knight would be a bigger part of this. But like, really, the fight takes place in the background of Mark's confab consultation with his two other personalities. Like, how do we feel about that gimmick is a trick? And, like, do we think it really... Under, like serve to underscore how nameless these henchmen really were. I thought it was a really clever thing to just have like these two kind of no-name jobbers come in and they have like okay powers like one is like lion strength and one is like creates a- epilepsy in the victim but like they're, they're such like jobbers that like having them their entire fight just take place in the background of Mark's battle of the mind is like such a clever thing to I kind of loved it because it was you know the the kind of physical representation of kind of the internal that was going on with Mark. And I loved how like your brain almost had to choose between okay and do do I keep my my thought process with the alters talking or do I switch over and like concentrate more on the fight which is honestly kind of how I feel Mark's brain is probably doing like where's my stable center where do I need to focus do I need to focus on self do I need to focus on the fight like lots of stuff going on I loved it I thought we actually weren't going to get any fighting done in this issue. Like, physical fighting. Just, uh, I thought it was going to be a very dialogue-heavy issue, and it was. But I didn't expect so much, like, actual fights. But as Raven said, I think it, it worked to, like, distract you from, from the conversation, which is kind of how Mark felt. It was, a, I think, if that was the intent, I think it was a good job. The uncomfortable revelation that Mark, who thinks of himself as, like, the original personality and as, like, the real one, and these other ones as, like, kind of fake or subordinate to him. Like, the revelation to Mark that he might be the problem and that his shame over his alters is just covering up the fact that he's ashamed of himself and the things that he has done is devastating. What do you do when you feel yourself to be the original person in your body and you realize that maybe you're the worst thing for it and that maybe you actually are the one who deserves to be taking a passenger seat sometimes that's an ego death of a really shaking kind yeah and i think it's very interesting when mark says like you know what i don't want to love i i can do like everything by myself whatnot and like that's a level of delusion that is incredible and I love how Jake, like, you know, I'm a New York cab driver. You can't fool me. 
each one of them is basically set in the place that they are most comfortable. So Jake is at, you know, the strip club and uh, Stephen is in, in his office. And then, you know, Mark is, you know, sitting on a rooftop as Moon Knight. Like it was so well done. I loved it. I think it's such a relief that Jed is picking up on the threads of the end of Lemire's run while also acknowledging like the Bemis run that came before and the Age of Kanfu. Like he's acknowledging that all these things happened and that, yeah, maybe Moon Knight has backslid a little bit or regressed a little bit because trauma and recent events. But like Jed seems to be committed to following through on integration that has been such an important thing since the end of the Lemire run. And instead of pushing away from it, is pushing back into it. And that's that's honestly like, whew, I was a little worried. When I first read it and I was like sifting through this conversation and thinking, looking back to the Lemire run, when the end of that run is all that personalities and Moon Knight like getting together and smashing Conscious Skull right into sand. And like that felt more accepting the other personalities like as equal parts of himself. But as you said, the age of Conshu and the Pemis run and all that made him backslide and made him crawl back like into sort of what he was before the Lemire run a bit. A lot of this shit that he'd been doing, what Mark had been doing, had been for Mark. And they that Mark was not trying to work on the collective. He was yeah, trying exactly. to work yeah, yeah. strictly on himself. And yeah, again, it was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm going to prove that I'm not crazy, which I love the fact that they're touching like full-on like hands deep this is mental health issues and how many times have we seen people who are neurodivergent or who have mental health issues they white knuckle it through life like i'm gonna be normal i am going to present as normal i have to be as normal to everybody because if i if i express my mental illness i will be seen as a liability and as crazy and undependable I'm like, that hit so hard for me. Especially when Mark himself is actually the liability here. And like, wow, what a realization. Like seeing the shame he feels over his condition and like, what if people know they'll think I'm, they'll think I'm a lunatic, etc. like stuff like that. And it turns out like his shame and his fear of people finding out is the problem. That is what is causing this issue. This is... You also have to add in his inferiority complex where he says, why would anyone, anyone want to be with me? Mark Spector, the killer, the mercenary, the... When you could be with the suave Hollywood rich guy or the, you know, humble cab driver, right? Why would we want to be with him? And that's what you were saying with these realizations that led to an ego death of like massive proportions, right? Yeah, yeah. I like that if you're a Moon Knight writer, then you have the opportunity to look at past Moon Knight runs that you don't like or don't think were good for the character, and you can just reframe those as backsliding. I think that's a really interesting thing that you can do if you're a Moon Knight writer. Because it also forces some self-reflection in a lot of ways of, okay, how has this character been good, and how has this character done, you know, wrong or, or toxic? toxic or amoral things like it's not just a hey we're here and we're the good guy we're always the good guy it's like no this character slides so wildly back and forth on the scale of moral amoral right wrong how you present and how you interact with the world it's almost a new emerging type of character that we have not really seen before in storytelling or in comic books and i love it because it gives you so much more room to go i was toxic I'm trying to do better and we are going to address this. We've talked throughout this whole run and all the recordings we've had about how Moon Knight like getting better because he's 
he now has a support system, right? But Mark is a person who has a, I know this might sound, I'm not sure if this is the right word to say, but a built-in support system with himself, like with Jake and Steve mm-hmm. in a way. And he's been denying them space to like let them out and hear their thoughts and let them like live their lives too. And it makes me think of all the therapy sessions that Mark has had with Dr. Sturman. Were they actually authentic in a way? If he never brought up, like they said, you never brought up your DID with her. You never brought up Steve. You never brought up Jake. You never brought up all these feelings. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that idea. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Jake Lockley seems to think that the real goal was to keep Mark in line himself. And I, I think that he hits on something really important there, which is like, he's not going to therapy to deal with his DID. He's not going to therapy to deal with like reconciling that and because that's not the problem. He's going to therapy because he's hoping to heal the Mark personality and make the Mark personality something that works, which is both like what is needed because the Mark personality is clearly the one that is the sickest here and the one that is unable to allow the other two breathing room to like work together as a system but also because he feels himself to be hurt and he feels himself to be broken in a way that he's kind of jealous of Stephen and Jake for being so confident and so in control they're the ones who are able to give him good advice here and to talk to him in a no-nonsense way they have no delusions about what's going on here all the delusions are centered within Mark's personality and that's why I think he's been focusing so much on that in therapy is that at some level he knows that he's the one that really has the problem they also pointed out that the doctor, Sturman, is not addressing them. Sturman knows about his DID, but never once has she asked for Stephen Grant, and never has she asked for Jake Lockley. She's only spoken to Mark, and she only addresses Mark. So, I mean, I think they're kind of right, and like I didn't really pick up on that, that she never touched on or asked about really the other personalities. She was always about Mark. If you're only getting therapy for yourself, but you're never addressing the other parts, parts of you how can you expect to you know work together when you're ignoring us and you're shoving us to the back and not letting us have any sort of agency this is a we situation not just a me situation like yeah and mark is so focused on himself he talks all about the midnight mission is mine he, he's built it by himself yeah. it's a lot of eyes it's a lot of me's and it's a lot of binds it feels like he desperately wants to be sufficient like mark wants to be enough he doesn't want to have to rely on steven or jake and he seems to feel like it makes him weaker or it makes him unreliable or it makes him dangerous but he wants so desperately to just for Mark to be enough and that for people to like him and not to like you know who he is when he's Steve or when who he is when he's Jake he wants people to see him and be like this is a person I want to spend time with and yeah. he seems to know that that's like not actually the case for yeah, I love how it seems to show that like Mark has just been all about avoidance of his of what his issues really are like I love when Stephen Grant says you know like you say you need Reese because she shows you how you want to be like you know but she doesn't ignore her vampirism mark like you know like that really like hit home that like oh my god all mark is trying to do is trying to power through white knuckle it not deal with the issues at hand because he doesn't want to be reminded that he still has those issues so he keeps you know his other personalities locked under tight rein and acts like he wants to you know fix them and fix himself he's not going about it in a healthy way he's not addressing what the issues really are and he's not 
really looking into himself to see, you know, like, hey, am I this shit dude? Or like, can I blame it on these other personalities? And it's unfortunate that his other personalities is kind of where he puts all of his like warmth and his personality that can deal with other people. Like, yeah, Jake is often a bit of a, a bit of a dangerous person <laughs> to say the very least. And, you know, Stephen is not necessarily clean of blood on his hands either, but it seems like a lot of the times Mark puts his better personality traits or the ones that are more personable into them. And like, if that's the case, then him trying to shut them out is just going to make him more and more miserable. I don't know. I think that kind of makes sense to me that you know mark would try to put maybe what he thinks are his better parts of himself into these other personalities because he hates himself he views himself as completely broken so he wants to like have maybe his best parts of himself shine on through these other personalities who can not be seen as as broken like he wants to have something good out there i don't know that's maybe what i'm getting but yeah but i mean okay so think back to his inferiority complex and how badly that that has been enforced on him all of his life like he accidentally gets his youngest brother killed his mother hates him vehemently he is never good enough and i mean like everything about his existence has always been you're not good enough you're okay fine you're gonna be in the army now you're gonna be you know mercenary and it's always you know in this box that's where you go that's where you stay and these other personalities were the only way he could express any other part of his personality or his being so yeah of course they're the the affable but slightly womanizing but seriously dangerous jake versus the very suave stephen grant who's you know just perfectly quaffed and knows finances so mark has never really had a chance to be a person yeah all of this internal conflict that he's having speaks to the power that he has been able to build up a crew of supporting characters even while he's going through all of this i want to point out there's this part where mark's talking about reese and he says this line that everyone he knows is either a superhero or a supervillain or like a rival that made me think how many superheroes like their entire social circle is other superheroes and how, how can you expect to be better if you're only surrounded by people who are just as messed up as you? The colors on this issue are so right. phenomenal. I'm going to keep singing the praises of Rochelle Rosenberg. The opening splash page of uh, Mark in the City, like the pink of Jake Lockley, it is the blue of Mark and the green of Stephen Grant. It's also the entire rainbow look closely and it's in a color wheel. like the blue melts into the purple melts into the red into the orange the yellow green and back the blue it's one whole thing but it's also something that you can very much see is fractured into three major things and that is such a nuanced beautiful use of color how each of their each of their caption boxes are color coded to each of them is really beautiful jake lockley's pages would not look as scuzzy strip clubby without that beautiful magenta tone the neon lights the neon lights that you can see in so many like clubs especially like strip clubs or seedy kind of little they put on that rave music they throw on those god-awful lights like you can almost feel like you're at each one of those places and it's it's great 
I just love how this issue was presented to us. Like, it was a therapy session that didn't involve Dr. Sternman. You know, it was, you know, fight therapy for Mark, but we really didn't focus on the fight because the fight wasn't what was important. You know, we, we know he was losing, you know, that much we know, but we didn't have to see the blow by blows of it until, you know, bam, you know, Mark's like, you know, you're right. I can't do this on my own. And he brings in Hunter's Moon and Tigra for like the win. He didn't bring them in though. They showed up on their own. It's interesting that Mark has to first accept that he's not alone in the physical world by accepting the help of new friends and allies, but also like now he has to understand that he also doesn't need to be alone within himself. And once he gets that figured out, we'll be seeing hopefully a fully realized Moon Knight who fights at full capacity instead of one third. Tigra's costume like has slowly morphed from like athletic shorts to like almost Psylocke's ninja costume a little bit the pants instead of being shorts now look like they are almost butt floss but with you know a few little stringy things connected to it definitely started off more as like full shorts but over time the art has changed so that the thigh slits in it that are cut out have gotten bigger and bigger to the point where it now looks like they're just bands or maybe even like tiger stripes underneath Daisy Duke please don't go Go back to the old bathing suit shredded bullshit, please. Yeah. I feel like, like it I has don't. been announced over the last few issues how unlike shorts they look. Sometimes it's easy to mistake the cutouts for just tiger stripes. Yeah, and it's such a contrast to the outfit we just saw her appear in Defenders Beyond in with that, mm-hmm. you know, like little cat on her shorts. I love moving Tiger away from being purely sexy in her visualization. Mm-hmm. I think she's a tiger woman. I think she's always going to be sexy no matter what you put her in. So like having her in like athletic wear that looks comfortable to wear at night in the cold is, is I think a really nice touch. I'm glad she's no longer in like the fanged bikini, but it does feel like this costume is slowly morphing back into the fanged bikini over time. Mm. I love that you could tell that Hunter's Moon is definitely part of the Moon Knight Khonshu cadre, but like there's just enough difference that like you're never going to confuse Hunter's Moon, Moon Knight, uh, Shadow Moon, like you're not gonna mix those up at all. And it's like you fit, but you are still very distinctly your own person. I love that. Does anybody see uh, nipple eyes on his suit or is it just me? Yeah, they do look like nipple eyes. Oh, oh yeah. for fuck's sake. The, like the belt looks like mouth. Great, things I can never unsee now. <laughs> I just noticed it, like just looking at a page. Yeah, it just, it would have been a really interesting thematic parallel, even though it doesn't make sense for the moon to change phases over the course of one fight, you know? (laughs) But the fact that it's a hangnail in the first panel, although it looks really fucking cool, and like, it always looks really cool, it does stick out to me on reread that that it is a hangnail there, and I'm trying to figure out if that was just an accident, or if there was a meaning to that. It definitely, with, with the shattered colors, and the way it splits up almost neatly into three separate colors, and with the hangnail moon, it does seem to be implying that Mark is at one third capacity and not operating at its full but and i kind of wish that the moon had slowly become whole over the course of the issue since we see it a lot the scene right after the moon knight has conquered grand mal and jake in sitting quietly in his shadow says do you think you were the only one who loved her and then it shifts to mark standing in the shadows with his hands balled into fists set aside his head down and he's mostly in the shadows he looks so small and he looks so shadowed and he looks so thin and frail and his mask is covered on the mouth so that his head the mr knight mask and his nose look a lot like the beak of Kanchu itself like the eyes are in shadow Ooh. it's just the beak of the nose and the skull of the mask he looks a lot like 
Kanshu in Kanshu's Mr. Knight persona more than anything there, as he's saying, I can do this alone, I don't need you. Cut immediately to Stephen Grant's full face, the face of the person who is under this mask in bright daylight, up close saying, then why are you losing this fight, Mark? I thought that was so, so cool. Moon Knight's face or Mark Spector's face is in darkness where he says you don't know who you are and that's why they're kicking the hell out of you and then there's the next page where Mark's like standing up and he says no no I can't I can't he sits down and he looks down and for some reason and his eyes are red like entirely red yeah wow I, I did not even notice that until you just said it but his eyes are red in only that panel it's actually very sinister yeah it feels but I wonder what that means like is it just a visual reference to does his eyes or like is he crying or is he just in pain? That's a really good question. I had not noticed that before. Hmm. I wonder I wonder. I would like to think it means that his eyes are filling with tears and turning red, but it definitely like it definitely has the normal comic book semaphore of like evil guy eyes. Yeah. That is really interesting. I don't think it's like him going evil. I definitely think it is like the last bit of, of ego and rage at not being able to be normal. And it just his ego has to die right there yeah agreed agreed now this issue was an issue that obviously the main internal battle was the battle that we were focused on you know and we've talked a little bit about his friends coming through and all of that but you know as we wrap up this issue what are any final thoughts any hopes that you are hoping for to come next i hope personally when he wakes up from the beat down he got as uh you know tiger is over there kind of like leaning over him like oh my god no mark like i, I hope he comes out of it a little bit you know more of a gestalt being you know uh, hopefully more integrated and you know maybe not as much learning trying to figure out how to cure his condition but learning how to live with his condition than trying to power through yeah i mean i don't i don't think there's any curing it i think they explicitly say like reese look how good reese is doing she accepts that she's not going to be cured that there is no cure and that she just has to accept her condition and live with the new reality that she's presented with and i'm hoping that mark can take inspiration I think Mark does take inspiration from Reese in terms of morality and her innocence, but I would like to see him look to her more as a, a good model for how he should go forward with dealing with his, his condition. And I, I want so much for Mark to just be a fully realized person who can work together with the Salters to be the whole complete person that I know he can be. It's good to see him climbing back out of this hole that he's kind of backslid into. And I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping that he's able to let go of the wheel enough without feeling like that makes him useless or a passenger in his own body. 